Good morning, brothers. Uh, once again, it's a joy to uh, be able to be with you and to share here. To um, set the stage for our passage this morning, I, I just want us to briefly, briefly recall uh, our passage from last week. And that is when Jesus had gone up on the mountaintop and he took Peter. James and John, sort of his inner circle of the 12 disciples, those, those three. And while they were there on the mountain, Moses and Elijah somehow supernaturally appeared to Jesus and to the other three. They saw him, and Jesus, it says, was, was transfigured before them. His clothes got really white, he got bright, and there, there was this absolutely supernatural moment that left Peter, James, and John in, in awe. And now we get into Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 32, which is coming right on the heels of that literal and that figurative kind of mountaintop experience. So they're, they're coming down the mountain, and then they arrive where the other nine disciples were down there waiting or doing what they were doing while Peter, James, and John, and Jesus went up. So that's, what, that's the context as we open our Bibles. And if you read with me, Mark chapter 9, I'm going to be reading this morning out of the uh, English Standard Version, the ESV, beginning with verse 14. And when they, that would be Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And Jesus answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long Am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, that would be Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. We're going to stop right there for now. And we'll, we'll pick up those last three verses in a short while. But when, when Jesus 
comes down with Peter, James, and John, and they, they get to where the other disciples were. Uh, we, we see kind of a familiar scene here, right? We, we, we see a crowd that's gathered. We see religious leaders like the scribes or the Pharisees that are engaging with Jesus or his disciples, and it's usually some sort of a debate or a dispute. And here, here's exactly what we have. We have the scribes, these religious leaders, arguing with Jesus' disciples. So then Jesus asks the question, what were you arguing about? And the interesting thing, we, we really don't get a clear answer, do we? Uh, the scribes don't say, well, we were arguing about this, and the disciples don't say, well, we were arguing about this. Instead, we have this man who just kind of interjects something here, and, and he says, uh, let's go back and read what he does say. He says, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And he said, I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able to. Now, Mark seems to be implying somehow to me that the argument between the disciples and the scribes then was somehow connected to this event about the father's son who had the demon that the disciples couldn't cast out. Uh, it, it was connected to their failure, actually, of casting out this spirit from the man's son, their lack of success. So if we go back to Mark chapter 3 from many weeks ago, back well before Christmas, in verses 14 and 15, we've already covered this passage. Um, I think I have it there. Um, and he, Jesus, appointed 12, whom he named as apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So we go back to the very original calling of the disciples and we see that one of the things Jesus was doing was to have a time of training with them to equip them and to empower them to be able to do the same kind of ministry that he was doing, to preach the gospel, to cast out demons, to heal the sick. And then we, we move to uh, Mark chapter 6, 7 to 13, and we're, we're not going to go through all those verses, but just a synopsis there. Jesus sent them out to preach. He sent them out to heal and to cast out demons, and they, they were very successful. In fact, they were drawing all kinds of crowds around them as, as well, and they came back and reported, and there was just this wonderful time of celebration. But this time, while Jesus was away with Peter, James, and John on the mountaintop, the other disciples, the nine that were left below, they, they seemed to understand their calling. They, they seemed to understand their mission. However, this time they were not completely successful as they had been when they had been sent out. Now, some of us may be surprised at Jesus' response to the man and to his disciples uh, at this point. Uh, you know, we might expect Jesus, kind of this idea of this really nice Jesus, this meek and mild Jesus, to say, oh, sir, I'm so sorry. Uh, my boys, you see, they're still learning. They, they haven't quite got it down yet. Don't worry, I'll, I'll take care of your need. But instead, Jesus just unleashes his frustration with, oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you, bring the kid to me. And as soon as the boy was brought to Jesus, 
And the evil spirit within the boy approached and got closer to Jesus. That demon caused the boy to go into a convulsion, to go roll on the ground and to start foaming at the mouth. And the father tells Jesus that this spirit's been plaguing his son since he was a little boy. We don't know exactly how old he was at this point, but he's been plaguing him for a long time. And sometimes this spirit even causes the boy to throw himself into the fire or throw himself into the water. And the father says, in order to destroy him. Now, when, when the Lord created life, he created life, he sustains life, and, and he, he wants, to have, wants us to have this abundant life. In John 10.10, we see that the thief comes only to steal and kill and to destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. What we see right here in Mark chapter 9 with his father's son, with the demon that wants to throw him into the fire and into the water, we see this verse literally fleshed out, right? That Jesus has come, they might have life and have abundant life, but we see the thief trying to come in to steal and to kill and to destroy. Now, my wife and I had the privilege of serving as um, missionaries in, in Paraguay from 1990 like to 2003. And one of the, the highlights of that ministry for me was being able to, to lead a Bible study in a very poor neighborhood where a man had had a, a bad heart and he needed a heart replacement. And the Baptist Hospital in Paraguay was the very first uh, hospital to do a heart transplant in the country. It was, it was historic for them. My friend was the administrator of the hospital, and it was just a really big deal. We prayed and prayed about this. And so Pedro had a heart transplant. And through that heart transplant, Pedro had been a hard-drinking, hard-partying, hard guy. And not only did he get a new physical heart, but he, he got a new spiritual heart. It's through seeing the ministry of the people who loved him and his family and cared for him, he came to have this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, he lived in a, in a neighborhood that was very, very strongly culturally Roman Catholic. And so Protestants were not looked upon um, very favorably there. But, but he said, I, I want my neighbors and my friends to know what I've learned here about Jesus. So he said, I, I, I want to have this, a Bible study, and we'll use my house. Well, his house had like five kids in it and just some small rooms, so there was no room in the house to have a Bible study. It was on the front porch. And so we had the Bible study on the front porch, and just a couple of doors down, there was this woman who was about 80 years old. Her name was Coti. And, and, and Coti was one of those kind of hardcore, cultural Roman Catholic folks that didn't think that evangelicals uh, really should be in her neighborhood. And she was a little bit vocal, pretty antagonistic about it. But as, as the weeks went by, we'd see her start to stand on her porch, sit on her porch. And then she'd kind of move a little closer. And it wasn't too many weeks until Coti was on the porch with us. And she was opening up the scriptures with us. And she was learning about the good news of the gospel and how it's different than religion. And she gave her heart to Jesus in embraced the gospel and embraced God's word. And one day I went back to this Bible study and Coti comes up to me and she was just a little, little lady, but a great smile, toothless kind of a smile, but great. 
Um, and, and she approached me and said, you know, my, my grandson, who's about in his, he was in his 20s, Francisco, uh, she says, missionary, Francisco has a demon. And would you go visit Francisco and cast out the demon? And uh, it turns out that Francisco had experienced some of these similar convulsions, some of the same kinds of things that we read about this boy having here in the ninth chapter of Mark. And, and so uh, one night, Francisco actually went out in the street naked and was dodging traffic and just about got killed. Um, so I invited another mature believer to go with me, and I, I had not had a lot of experience like this much before. Um, and, and we prayed, and we fasted, and, and we went to see Francisco. We didn't even know if he was going to be home. I mean, these people didn't have a telephone. It wasn't like you call ahead and say, may I come exercise your evil spirit today? Uh, so... Uh, my friend and I went, we, we, we parked, and I, I tried to get something off of Google Earth, but I couldn't get a clear enough image to kind of show you the actual street and what it was like. But you park, and there's, there's trees out of the front, and, and then there's this kind of a, a building there parallel to the road, and you have to go around the building through a pathway, and, back, and there's like a compound with houses that are kind of in a circle around there. And in the, in the middle of this area, there was an open area and we, we followed the noise of the voices. When we went out, we, we saw that people had been playing volleyball. There was a volleyball court there, and so people were playing volleyball. And we found out that Francisco was there, and they were actually tending to Francisco because in an unexplainable way, at the same moment that we walked onto the property in the front of the house where we couldn't see anybody and nobody could see us, the demon began to manifest itself in Francisco, and he started to have the convulsions. He started to roll on the ground there as they were playing volleyball. I didn't know how to explain it, but it seems as if when the power of the spirit comes and the demon realizes that there's an opposition to it, there's often this manifestation that comes with that. So I just watched for a minute wondering what's going on. And finally, my friend and I went and we, we, we prayed. They said, would you pray? Would you pray, missionary? I said, sure. And I, I rebuked the spirit in the name of Jesus. And at that moment, Francisco calmed down, but it was as if he fell asleep. He would just kind of, his eyes, and so they started slapping and putting water on his face, and he would kind of come up again, and, and we'd pray for him some more, and he would just kind of fall asleep and then wake up. And we did this a series of times. And... When he was calmed down and seemingly relieved of the, the power of this spirit, I, I shared the gospel with him. He didn't embrace it at that moment. And I, I prayed for him again, and then my friend and I, I left. Well, it turns out that uh, that wasn't the last time Francisco had a problem with the spirit. It continued for a while, and then a, another group of guys from a Pentecostal church went over, I don't know how many times, and, and they prayed for Francisco, and Francisco was delivered from the spirit. So Pentecostals one, Baptist zero. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Maybe Baptists get a half. We get a half on that one. I don't know. Um, 
But Francisco went on to profess faith in Jesus as his Lord and his Savior, and he began attending worship services, and he went to Bible studies, and he was a changed man. Now, getting back to Mark chapter 9, this is not just another story of Jesus showing his power over Satan and demons. Mark's got limited real estate in this book, right? He's not just going to keep being redundant about things. There's some reason he, he actually puts this here. He's already shown many times that Jesus has power over demons. So this is, there's something else, I believe, that Mark wants to show us here. And I believe that this, this story is showing us that Jesus' disciples once again lacked faith in Jesus as the Almighty Lord and King. They still were not getting it. And after rebuking his disciples and others for their lack of faith, the boy's father brings his demon-afflicted son to Jesus and says, but if you can do anything, please have compassion on us and help us. And the thrust of the tone of Jesus, I mean, what are you saying if I can do anything? If you can do anything, well, all things are possible for the one who believes. And here again, Jesus addresses the lack of trusting faith. Now, the boy's father cried out, oh, I believe, but would you help my unbelief? Men, um, I think there's a really huge lesson here for us this morning in, in this man's plea because he confessed to having some amount of faith and yet he also admitted his doubt and his unbelief. I'm not a great graphics artist here, but I just thought this might be a little bit helpful. It's sort of a spectrum, I think, here of belief and unbelief, and I'm calling it here the faithless to faith-filled kind of spectrum. And on the one side of faithless, you have these hardcore atheists, like maybe a Richard Dawkins, uh, some of the more uh, vehement atheistic folks. And then on the far right, you have Jesus, who was absolutely filled with faith, the only perfect example of faith that, that the world has ever been able to know. And whether you have just a little bit of faith, like maybe like a tiny mustard seed, or whether you have faith to move mountains... We all fall someplace along that spectrum between Richard Dawkins and Jesus, right? Uh, we are this confusing sometimes mix of belief and unbelief. And, and we need the Lord to help us in our unbelief. So the big idea today has kind of two parts. I'm going to give us the very first part of the big idea and that is that every Christian is a mixture of faith and faithlessness. Does that resonate with you guys? Can, can you see that in your own life? Now, I, I think it's important to dig a little deeper into our English word for believe that we find throughout the New Testament. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I, I know enough and I have enough resources to, to know that I, I really believe the word trust captures the Greek much better than believe, particularly for our Western culture here today. For most of us, believe is more of a cognitive thing. It's more of a knowledge thing uh, that we have the right thought than it is that we have the right heart. And if we're not careful, 
we, we can fail to, or, or we can really just fall into like a trap of thinking, believe is having the right idea. It's having the right opinion. It's having the right answer. It could even be having the right religion. Well, I'm not a Muslim, and I'm not, I'm not this, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I believe the right stuff in my head. But this belief has the idea of thinking or just being convinced about something. But we can think about God, and we can be convinced that Jesus is God's son. We can be convinced that he was crucified for our sins. We can be convinced that he rose from the dead. We can be convinced of all those things. And, and you know, James 2, 19 says, you say that you believe in one God. Well, you do well. The, the demons believe also, and they tremble. You know, no one believes in the truth of one God more than Satan himself. No one believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior and King, more than Satan himself believes that cognitively. But there's this other element of not just being convinced about or thinking about. There's this, this element of allegiance, this element of trust. And you and I can be convinced that the Bible is God's word. We can be convinced that it's true and without error. But unfortunately, we can be convinced of that thing and not really trust it. We cannot be faith-filled about what that truth we claim to believe really does say. We can be convinced without living a life of dependent faith. Now, this Greek word faith has a verb form as well as a noun form. And that's really the word that's used here. It's, it's the word faith, not believe in the Greek. And so we don't have a verb for faith. We don't say, I faith you, right? We, we, we say, I trust you. We can say, I believe you. We have verbs for those. But we don't have a verb for faith. And our, our language is deficient in that for these particular types of, of understanding. And so the boy's father literally said, I faith you, help my unfaith. That was really his statement, literally. And after the father's confession of this very incomplete and imperfect faith, Jesus expels the evil spirit, saying, you mute deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him. And then there's this little phrase at the end. He says, and never enter him again. Now, we look at the rest of Scripture at times to help us understand Scripture. And so Matthew has a, a passage in chapter 12, verses 43 to 45, where Jesus is teaching, and he's warning folks. And he says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it will be with this evil generation. So as wonderful and freeing as it is to be delivered from bondage to an evil spirit... Jesus warns that the relief could be temporary if the spirit is not replaced by his spirit. If there's not another replacement of that evil in us. I mean, you know, even with moral things, guys, we can stop doing the bad behavior. But if we don't get the spirit of God in the gospel to replace it and become the basis of that, we can have problems even worse than our morality. Um, 
The demon finally left the boy in peace after crying out and convulsing him violently. The boy was left limp as if he were dead, and, and Jesus lifted up the boy. And this may or may not be some intentional picture of resurrection as we see this boy being looking for dead and Jesus raising him up again to life. But when his disciples were alone with Jesus, they asked him why they had failed to exercise the demon. And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Uh, apparently, Jesus' disciples had sort of slipped into a more mechanical, like go on autopilot mode of casting out demons without really connecting themselves to the source of the power and spending time in dependent prayer with the Father without recognizing their need for him to empower them to get the job done. And, and you know, I, I have to confess that far too many times I, I have attempted to do the work of ministry in my own strength instead of spending time in dependent prayer, instead of spending time relying on God's spirit to do something totally supernatural that's beyond my abilities and skills and training so that only he gets the glory. Now, the next three verses describe the second of three times Mark records Jesus telling his disciples that he's going to be killed and resurrected from the dead. So let's read those verses 30 to 32 as we prepare for close. They went out, or they went on from there, and they passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will arise again. But they did not understand the saying, and, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem for the final time before he would be crucified, and he was trying to avoid the crowds because he really wanted to spend time with his disciples, knowing that the time he had remaining was short. He wanted to impart to them as much as he could. And so, once again, why did Mark put this here? Why, of these three things, why was this one here? We know the three is probably because they weren't getting it, okay? He had to sell them three times because they, just, they weren't getting it. But why was the second one placed kind of right here? Um, we have to believe that he had a purpose for it. And I believe Mark 9.32 gives us a clue when it says, but they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. Why were they afraid to ask Jesus their question? Why were they afraid to ask the question about what they didn't understand? You know, um, was it because he was harsh with them earlier and he called them a faithless generation and said, how long do I have to put up with you guys? Uh, were they afraid that they would just look dumb after so many times and not getting it still? You know, we can't be really sure, but I think Mark's making a connection here between the disciples' lack of faith and understanding with their fear of asking questions. You see, our, our fear of asking, I believe, can be connected to our lack of understanding and to our faithlessness. So we'll get to the, the full big idea. We remember back, every Christian is a mixture of faith and faithlessness. But admitting what we don't understand and asking questions we're afraid to ask is one way to grow in faith and to reduce our doubts. 
We have some great examples of faith throughout the Bible. And we see those examples of faith not understanding everything. We see them asking questions. We see Abraham when God says, you're going to have this, this, these descendants that are going to be like the stars in the skies. And Abraham says, well, how am I to know that? I, it doesn't register. I'm old. Uh, we, we see David in the Psalms in so many places asking these questions. God, why do the evil seem to be prospering? How long, Lord, is it going to be before you answer me? We, we see Job had three huge questions as he went through his suffering. He said, first, why didn't I die at birth? Why am I still alive? How can a man be right before God? A great question, Job asked. And then Job asked this other question. He said, if a man dies, shall he live? Okay, guys, th those are the questions that probably each of us wrestle with. You know, why am I here on the earth? Why, did, why was I born? Why, why didn't I die when I was born? You know, can a, can a man really be right before God? Is it possible when after a man dies that he's going to be able to live again? Those are big questions. And if we're afraid to ask those questions, we will not likely get to the right answers. How about Jesus' question, the one who was faith-filled? The question he asked on the cross when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, do, do you have questions this morning that maybe you've been afraid to ask? You know, maybe some of you this morning have questions about this whole demon stuff. Some of you are probably kind of a little skeptical. I probably would be. I mean, is that really a demon down there? Was that epilepsy? Was that, was that some sort of an emotional experience? Was that, what was going on down there in Paraguay? Some of you may have some doubts still about the resurrection. Yeah, I know this is the Christian story, but there's a lot of myth in this whole stuff here. And, you know, you got these stories of people maybe coming back to life, and it, it makes a great story. It's a good image. Do you, do you have a question about did Jesus physically raise from the dead? A lot of people do. In fact, I think that's the question that every Christian has to wrestle with before you come to faith, before you can trust him. You have to believe that he's alive, and he's alive forevermore. You see, sometimes I think we fear that if we acknowledge our doubts and questions, it's going to seem like we don't have faith. But the truth is, being afraid to admit that we, what we don't understand, being afraid to ask questions, is a lack of trust that we can either accept God's answers or his silence. Because not asking questions is not faith. In fact, it can cover up a lack of faith. Now, God never told Job why he allowed him to suffer so terribly, and God isn't always going to answer our questions to our satisfaction. But if we trust him enough to ask our questions, I think we're going to move a click or two to the right on that faithless to faith-filled scale. Because even when we don't get the answers that we understand or like, we know that we can trust him in the middle of the questions, in the middle of the uncertainties. We grow a little more faith and we grow a little less faithless. I want to close just by going back to the distinction between believing and trusting. In John 3.16, we have this verse that many people are familiar with. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it says, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life is literally whoever faiths in him, whoever trusts in him. We're talking about this active, depending, trusting kind of a faith. And if we haven't experienced that yet, guys, all the belief in the world about what Jesus did is not going to matter to you if you don't trust it for your own life and your salvation. 
There's an illustration that I love that I'm going to close with. There was a French tightrope walker named Blondin. You may have heard of him back in the 1800s. He had more trips across Niagara Falls than anybody else on a tightrope. Uh, a long, long way, too. It wasn't this really short span. It was a long span. He, it was a spectacle. People would come from miles and miles and miles around to watch Blondin cross over the falls. And Blondin one day was going across the falls, and his manager was there with him. And one day, Blondin pushed a wheelbarrow across the falls with him. This went over with a, with a wheelbarrow. And they got to the other side, and the crowd was there just screaming. And he says, the manager says, how many of you believe that Blondin can push somebody in the wheelbarrow over the falls? <laughs> and they, re went, they went wild. Yes, yes, we want to see that. And he said, OK, who will get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> right? This is a true story. I don't like the canned ones, but this one's really legit. And at that moment, Blondin's manager climbed on his shoulders. And Blondin walked back across the falls with his manager on his shoulders. Okay, th that manager didn't just believe that Blondin could do it. He didn't just believe cognitively about it. He faithed him. Okay, have you faithed Jesus? And, and if not, there's no better time than this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that, that, Lord, you do, even as you taught us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Thank you, Lord, that you do deliver us. And thank you that one day you will vanquish him for all of eternity and no one will be under his plaguing afflictions anymore. Fill us with your spirit. And if there's some today that don't have eyes to see or ears to hear, would you open their eyes and their ears? Would you soften their hearts? Would you help us to ask those questions maybe we've been afraid to ask? And Lord, where we are faithless, would you help us to be faith-filled? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.